Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services partner for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at more than 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that helps power their emerging markets business strategies. Today's podcast focuses on three topics, Iran nuclear negotiations, understanding sanctions policies related to Iran, and envisioning a post-sanctions climate. My name is Matthew Spivak, and I'm Frontier Strategy Group's Head of Research for the Middle East and North Africa. I will be moderating today's podcast. I'm joined today by Anise Basiri Tabrizi, who is one of FSG's expert advisors on Iran. Anise is a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and she's currently seeing, seeking her PhD at King's College on a very timely issue, European-Iranian nuclear negotiations. As a reminder, this podcast and all of FSG's content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. Anise, welcome, and thanks for joining us today in our London studio. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, there's so many uh, different things that I'd like to talk about with you, but there's only so much that we can cover. Um, I, I think uh, just for the for the benefit of a lot of our clients that are thinking about Iran, uh, you know, some of them are there right now and they're, they're thinking about potentially expanding. Um, others are looking at developing their strategic plans, thinking about a market entry. Um, I think to start with, it would be great to get a little bit of context on what's going on with nuclear negotiations, uh, because ultimately a lot of them are not going to be able to implement their plans uh, without a, a potential final deal um, on nuclear negotiations and then what that would mean for sanctions relief. Uh, so the first question I would have for you, what are the key sticking points right now uh, that must be resolved for a final nuclear deal to be reached by the current June 30th deadline? Uh, I would say there are three main uh, sticking points remaining until June 30. The first one is uh, verification. Um, so on one side, we have the Americans saying that Iran has committed to give the International Atomic Agency uh, access to investigate suspicious sites anywhere in the country, and that we also permanently adhere to the additional protocol. Um, on the other side, we have Tehran, which uh, says that uh, it will only voluntarily and temporarily implement the additional protocol, similarly to what it did between 2003 and 2005, and that uh, in terms of inspection, military sites will be off. Um, the second sticking point is research and development, um, which means basically the activities that Iran will be enabled to still carry on under the agreement, uh, especially in terms of the advanced centrifuges, IR6 and IR8 in particular. And the two sides still disagree on uh, the terms that will be defined in the final deal. Uh, the main, and I would say the most contentious issue, remains the timing and the scale of the sanction relief. The United States has stated that um, the sanction imposed on Iran will be lifted on the phase-out and gradual level, and that uh, every phase-out um, sanction relief will depend on the IAEA verification that Iran has taken every step necessary on nuclear issues. Uh, the Iranian side has a very different stand on this and uh, has stated that all the sanctions will be lifted completely on the same day, first day, in which the deal will be implemented. So we have different interpretation of these points. Uh, we have to remember that uh, part of the reason for this different interpretation is also the fact that we have political forces on both Washington and Tehran that are opposed to a deal, so we don't know how much is actual uh, you know, disagreement on the issue and how much is 
in fact, uh, uh, you know, due to uh, kind of refrain from having these political forces putting pressure on the negotiators. Yeah, so some tough issues to overcome. Um, as you said, three, three main sticking points, verification of a deal if it were to be reached, um, agreement on what levels of research and development uh, could be undertaken still by Iran on nuclear issues, and then very important, the, the timing and scope of sanctions, important for um, this deal being reached, um, also very important for our clients that are trying to have an understanding of how they're going to be able to operate in the market. Um, if things do change, how can they figure that into their plans? So some big issues to overcome. Um, given that, what do you think are the prospects of a final deal being reached by the deadline that's in place right now, which is June 30th? I think both sides will do everything in their power to reach the agreement by the final um, date set on June 30. Uh, the main reason being what I said before, meaning the political forces both in Washington and Tehran, the longer it takes for them to negotiate, uh, the higher the risk that they would be putting increasing pressure on the negotiators. And uh, especially this is especially true for the U.S., since uh, we have uh, a vote uh, taking place on uh, congressional legislation that will put oversight on uh, the Iranian deal. And uh, um, basically the time of the review, which would be allowed uh, for Congress um, in terms of uh, negotiation of the deal, would be reduced by about a month if the deal will be presented to Congress by July the 9th. So I think the U.S. would do anything in their power to reach the agreement by June 30, and if not, then then shortly after. And based on that, is is there room for compromise in your view, or, or do you think another extension might be in, in the works? The two sides have been pretty good in defining the parameters of a final deal, and this was pretty surprising for most of the analysts on the Iranian nuclear issue. So it's fair to say that there is room to think that the two sides will be able to find a compromise. Issues such, for example, the number of centrifuges or the Iraq um, reactor, heavy water reactor, were thought to be impossible to be solved, and uh, they are already defined in the parameters of a final deal. Um, so, you know, like, I think there is room to think that the negotiator on the, uh, on the right path. Of course, we saw the three main sticking points, and I think especially the sanction issue will remain the main point, and uh, I don't completely exclude an extension from happening. I think the two sides are very much aware the alternative to the negotiation are very negative, and breaking off talks would be uh, detrimental uh, on all sorts of uh, regional and international level. Um, so I think they would go for an extension rather than breaking off negotiation if they wouldn't find an agreement by June 30. I want to go back to one thing you'd mentioned, which is uh, this U.S. legislation that, that's being um, uh, proposed right now. Uh, let's assume that there is legislation that's passed where uh, Congress is required to approve a deal. How does that change the dynamics? I mean, you said it's something that might speed up um, you know, how the U.S. negotiating team looks at trying to reach a deal. Are there other uh, ramifications? It will probably impact the level of Iranian confidence on the ability of the Obama administration to deliver on a sanction relief. And uh, besides that, I think that it would set into play a blame, uh, blame game, um, which could be dangerous in terms of uh, in, engendering and uh, hampering the mutual trust that has been built in the past 18 months. Um, we have to remember that Iran has been defined by the IAEA as 
complying with all its end of obligation under the JPOA. So if the United States is not able to comply with uh, its end of obligation, therefore introducing new sanctions contrary to what agreed under the JPOA, this would be something that the Iranians would keep in mind and therefore you know, like would be considered um, detrimental to the mutual trust of the both sides. Great. And just to confirm for our uh, listeners that, that don't have as, as much level of depth of knowledge on this, the JPOA is the uh, the interim agreement they had, they had reached. That, that didn't start the process in the place, but it started the latest round of exactly. negotiations. It was agreed in uh, November 2013 and implemented in January 2014. Uh, w- one more question just for context related to nuclear negotiations. Um, just some background first. Our clients, when they think about planning and they, they try to anticipate what's going to happen with this, Obviously, nobody really knows. There's a lot of dynamics at play, as I think you've done a great job describing. Um, Are there any key milestones or even dates that um, people should be watching right now ahead of the June 30th deadline that could give an idea of where negotiations are going? Are they headed in a direction where there might be a deal? Are they headed in a direction where there will not be a deal? It's very difficult to say, but I would um, keep in mind that tomorrow, allegedly, there will be the vote on the Corker bill, um, the bill on the oversight of Congress on the Iranian deal. So uh, Thursday would be (laughs) a day to watch. And then uh, next week, uh, on May 12th, a uh, negotiator will start at the political level once again uh, in Vienna. So, of course, uh, everything can happen in the, in the next one month and a half between the May 12th and June 30. Excellent. So a lot to watch uh, tomorrow being May 7th. So by the time that there are listeners uh, thinking about these insights, it, it will have already happened. But I think that um, it just goes to show that there's a, a lot of uh, dynamics involved, uh, but a lot to watch. And important from a contextual perspective, as companies are, are planning for this market, it's important to have plans in place, but uh, we certainly have not reached the finish line yet, and, and there's a lot of challenges that will need to be overcome b- before we get there. Now, I want to pivot a little bit uh, to another topic that is really critical for um, our clients, multinationals, in investing in emerging markets. I wanted to focus on uh, sanctions policy, in particular because of your focus on EU sanctions. My first question for you, how would you characterize the different views uh, within the bloc when they think about future sanctions relief? Um, the three countries have been mostly united since the beginning of negotiation in 2003. However, France has assumed a more hawkish stand uh, since 2007 and the Sarkozy presidency, and we can still see the legacy of this hawkish presidency to date. Uh, now, in terms of uh, sanction relief, um, after the political framework has been released in April, at the beginning of April, both uh, François Hollande and uh, French Foreign Minister Fabius had declared that uh, uh, the sanction relief will uh, be uh, phased out and gradual. And they also insisted on uh, introducing a procedure, a snapback procedure, which would allow the P5 plus one to set back and reintroduce the UN sanctions should Tehran fail to comply with uh, its end of obligation. So in terms of the three, um, between the three countries, France has uh, assumed uh, the most hawkish stand in terms of sanction relief. Okay, so so France may be taking a, a little bit of a harder line. Is this impacting how companies might be positioned? I personally don't think so. We have to remember that France has been the first country that sent the biggest trade delegation in Iran 
uh, after the joint plan of action was implemented in January 2014. Um, so I think the same will happen uh, should a deal uh, be reached uh, by June. Um, the reason being that uh, one thing is a political stand in the negotiation, um, also driven by uh, France's relations with uh, the Gulf monarchies. So a lot has been you know, uh, linked to the posture uh, that uh, the French had to assume uh, in light of their trade and uh, defense negotiation and uh, trade relations with uh, the Gulf monarchies. So I think uh, once an agreement has been reached, uh, French companies would be equally positioned, especially because um, the, the, the French have the strongest automotive sector. And I think Iranians would be keen to have them back in the Iranian market. Uh, now, that said, um, Germany, of course, would be best positioned uh, between the three because uh, despite the sanctions, it maintain uh, an economic position and a presence in Iran. So in terms of uh, relations and understanding of the Iranian market, it probably will be best positioned in re-entering uh, in a more uh, complete way. Okay, a- excellent. In early April, uh, the EU uh, reimposed sanctions on an Iranian bank and 32 uh, shipping firms. Uh, this is just one example of, of what can happen as negotiations are still ongoing. Could that represent something that would concern European businesses operating in Iran? Um, the EU decision was linked to the fact that the EU court ruled out uh, the sanctions which were imposed on these entities. And uh, the EU court ruled out these sanctions because uh, not enough evidence was presented in support of this imposition of sanctions. Um, The EU imposed sanctions on these entities mostly uh, on the basis of classified information, and this classified information cannot be presented to the EU court. Um, So this is not the first instance in which this has happened. And every time this has happened, the EU simply relisted the same entities under a different legislation to override what was the EU court decisions. Um, I don't think this would happen in any way in a post-sanction regime, but I would encourage uh, uh, European businesses having a presence in Iran to basically refrain from engaging with any of these entities until a post-sanction regime uh, is in place because uh, any EU court uh, ruling would be simply temporary. Yeah, uh, very important for companies to note. And as we've seen in other post-sanctions climates, there will still be some companies that will be subject to sanctions enforcement uh, that will be on blacklists. You know, maybe they have activity uh, that, that is not related to the to what is negotiated in a final nuclear deal uh, that's just not covered. So company, it'll be on, on the burden will be on companies to make sure that they're um, keeping up with understanding who are on these lists, who who is subject to sanctions, and making sure that they don't go past any sort of red lines there. Sticking with the EU and, and sanctions policy, I think one thing. Um, that's important just from a planning perspective for companies is understanding uh, the process uh, that we might see for sanctions relief. So question I have for you is, what is the process that you EU must follow uh, in order to lift sanctions if, and it, obviously it's a big if, but if there is a final nuclear deal uh, to be reached? Um, first of all, there are two types of EU sanctions against Iran. Um, the first type is uh, the sanctions introduced between 2007 and 2010, which simply implemented the UN uh, Security Council resolution in the European territory. And the second type of sanctions are those introduced between 2010 and 2012, also known as uh, autonomous or unilateral uh, sanctions, uh, which uh, target the Iranian energy and financial sector. So for the first type of sanction, um, 
the only mechanism needed is basically a UN Security Council resolution, which el would eliminate the previous UN Security Council resolution. And then the EU would simply implement the resolution on the EU territory. For the second type of sanction, um, there is a need for the foreign ministers of all 28 uh, EU states to gather in a foreign affairs council meeting and basically unanimously decide uh, that they want to lift sanctions. Uh, this decision would be uh, then uh, passed into a regulation which would be publicized in a US, uh, EU official journal and once uh, publicized it would be enforced. So it's a pretty straightforward procedure and only pending a EU Foreign Affairs Council meeting. Okay, it, it pretty straightforward. And I would say that for um, for our clients, for businesses that are focused um, on Iran right now, I, I, I would think that the second set of sanctions, the ones that are implemented between 2010 and 2012, will be really critical that they need to see uh, lifted or, or eased in some way. Um, you know, the sanctions uh, involved, uh, you know, SWIFT code restrictions, for example. Given that it sounds like there's, it's still a fairly straightforward process, but it does involve a, a lot of different countries approving uh, any sort of uh, deal. Um, what do you see as the potential timeline? It's difficult to say. However, if the parties decided to lift all uh, EU autonomous sanctions uh, at once, uh, I think it's a matter really of weeks, no more than that, because like, we would need just a, a meeting to take place and then the implementation right after. However, if the parties decide to phase out and to gradually lift sanction, uh, then uh, the whole process might take longer. And it's really difficult to say how long and which sanction would be lifted first and which would be lifted uh, later. Um, my assumption would be that uh, the, the most recent ones would be lifted first, meaning the, the ban on the SWIFT, which you mentioned on uh, March 2012, and uh, the oil embargo, which was imposed in January 2012. However, these were also the sanctions which uh, most strongly impacted the, the Iranian economy, so the negotiator might decide to keep them uh, until the very end as a leverage uh, on, uh, against Iran, basically. So it's very difficult to say uh, the timing um, in terms of, you know, like a potential uh, phased out and gradual um, decision to lift the sanction. Yep, it, and, and it's, it, it introduces uh, another element in, in this whole, um, you know, story that makes it hard again for businesses to plan. Oil embargo, obviously, just because of what it means for uh, government revenue, obviously important just from the perspective of what that means for government spending locally. Um, also important um, that the SWIFT code restrictions as far as um, companies just being able to do business, their day-to-day -day transactions. You know, companies have a presence there. They've been there in the past. Uh, but what those specific restrictions did really changed the way that uh, at least our clients looked at uh, investment there. One final question on just EU sanctions. Which sanctions will be the most important to lift really in order to boost the Iranian economy? I think the oil embargo and the SWIFT are those critically having a, an impact on the Iranian economy. Um, we have to remember that all EU autonomous sanctions had a very strong impact on the Iranian economy. Um, in the end, the EU up until 2010 was the main trade partner of Iran. Um, and things changed drastically after the autonomous sanctions have been uh, imposed. Um, in terms of the oil embargo, if uh, the, the sanction should be lifted, 
then uh, we will have prospects of uh, 600,000 barrels per day being introduced in uh, Europe, as it was the case uh, up until 2012. And um, we have to remember that in terms of energy and oil sector, this constituted about 90% of the imports of goods uh, in the EU from the Islamic Republic, which is a big, big share. Uh, however, um, if only the oil embargo uh, is uh, lifted without the financial uh, sector being, uh, you know, like dealt with, and therefore the SWIFT ban being lifted, then I don't think anything major would be solved, as we know with, with the asset freeze and uh, uh, all the assets which have been uh, basically produced by all revenues which are uh, maintained outside of Iran. Uh, the same is likely to happen if the SWIFT ban is not lifted at the same time as the oil embargo. Very important points. Nearly, is it $100 billion uh, that are frozen outside of the country? Very important. Um, obviously, this would also have impacts on um, you know, anything from the currency, uh, you know, if the currency can, can strengthen against the U.S. dollar or if there's further volatility. It also will have an impact on inflation. Uh, inflation has come down a lot uh, in, in recent years, but it's still pretty high. Um, you know, people talk about some of the relief that we've seen uh, under uh, President Rouhani, uh, you know, having inflation at m- maybe 15 percent. Uh, big achievement, far down from, from 40 percent, uh, but still a pretty big challenge. Um, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into really our last topic. We're already starting to talk about it, but really envisioning a post-sanctions environment, you know, economic uh, trade implications of a final nuclear deal if it is reached. Very important for companies as they think about long-range planning. Uh, I think there's definitely an understanding that sanctions relief, uh, it's not going to really impact the economy overnight. Do you see any danger of mismanaged expectations uh, between what Iranians expect from sanctions relief and, and then what Europe, U.S., others, what they could promise in a final deal? The Iranian negotiator, I think, have a very good understanding of what is likely to happen and how difficult it will be in reality to implement sanctions and to have a direct impact on the Iranian economy. Um, this is especially true in terms of uh, the U.S. legislation. Um, they know that uh, at least for the first period, uh, the U.S. legislation um, would be lifted only through uh, the presidential waivers. And they know how uh, unstable and unreliable this could be, uh, but uh, they seem to be accepting this as um, you know a condition for the deal to be reached, um, as long as uh, the UN Security Council resolution will be lifted. So they want to not to be considered under the sanction regime anymore, but they know that uh, the the difference between what would be lifting sanction on the paper and lifting sanction in reality will be the only risk that I see uh, in terms of a mismatch between what should be delivered and uh, what will be delivered in practice is um, the period between uh, the time in which there is uh, only the U.S. presidential waiver sanction lifted and the congressional uh, decision to actually lift all sanction. Um, This because of the secondary impact of the U.S. legislation, uh, which I think might uh, risk to uh, lead um, uh, EU companies and financial institutions to still refrain from engaging uh, with Iran to the extent they, they could and they should. We know how much uh, EU banks uh, have been uh, um, subject to fear and reputational risks uh, for the uh, US secondary legislation impact. And I think in the time frame between uh, the 
uh, U.S. legislation being placed only through presidential waiver and the congressional decision. Uh, I think you know uh, EU financial institution might still decide to refrain from engaging with the Iranian financial institution. Okay, so the, the chilling effect of sanctions and, and obviously what that means for banks, um, it will continue to be uh, a challenge. I, I think that's something that very, very important for uh, everyone to, to realize that um, because sanctions will not be lifted overnight, um, th- there's not going to be an impact overnight. It will take some time. Uh, I, I think as, you, as you're making a really great point there as far as how institutions are looking at this. Um, one important point to make, though, um, is there are companies obviously that are there right now that, that are doing business under the current sanctions regime, that are doing legal business. Obviously, through, through the exemptions in place, uh, you know, we have a lot of clients that are in um, fast-moving consumer goods sector, um, medical device sectors, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, so f- for them, uh, any sort of sanctions relief will be welcome, but it doesn't mean that immediately the environment's going to change for them. One follow-up question I have for you uh, that I think is important just from a perception perspective. Uh, you said that Iranian negotiators definitely have a very clear view on what a sanctions relief process would look like, how it might be different, obviously, from what the U.S. can offer versus uh, the EU. What about the Iranian public? I mean, is, is, are the negotiators doing a good job communicating to them, making sure, making sure that they're managing their expectations, or is that something that's still a, a, a challenge that will be ahead of them? It will definitely be a challenge, no less because the whole presidency of Rouhani has been based on the improvement of the Iranian economy. So since June 2013, the Iranian public has been expecting some kind of improvement of the Iranian economy. However, I think the negotiator have been doing a very good job in describing the risk and the time that it will take for them to put into practice and uh, you know trans- translate what has been agreed on paper into practice. Um, so I think you know it will be uh, definitely a challenge for the Iranian population. But I think after you know so many years of sanctions, it would not be completely different for them to wait for a little bit uh, longer for the situation to improve. Yep. Uh, and one of the things that we saw um, after the, the framework agreement on April 2nd, there was definitely a, a boost to consumer confidence, to, some, to business confidence. You saw that the stock market started to perform a, a better than it was. Um, even the currency strengthened a little bit. We did see some of those gains, though, start to drop off after about three weeks. Um, and, and I wonder... Would you expect the same type of reaction? I think there is this kind of understanding in the Iranian population. There will be probably a boost. They are still buying dollars whenever there is a chance. uh, And they know that the impact will be strong on the the confidence of the market. But in reality, they know that in terms of uh, having European companies or international companies uh, entering once again uh, in the Iranian market, it's not something that can be done overnight. If nuclear talks crumble, or, or let's say that a deal is reached, uh, but then either it unravels or, or may, let's say the U.S. pulls out of it, uh, what happens to, to U.S.-EU coordination on Iran sanctions? Uh, never really before have we seen so much international coordination on, on sanctions policy. Do you anticipate that there could be a split in this policy, or, or what direction could it go if, if there is an issue with negotiations or a final deal? I don't expect any split if uh, an agreement is not reached. Um, for one main reason, even if the EU decides to split from the US, it's still European companies would be still subject to US secondary legislation if a deal is not reached. So in practice, there would be really uh, no 
practical effect to splitting from the U.S. either than a political decision. Um, you know, like we we, we know that uh, again, like uh, European banks have been subject to to fines. Uh, we had seen uh, just recently BNP Paribas being fined nine billion dollars uh, for uh, violating U.S. Uh, sanctions. Um, so I think you know, like uh, the EU legislator are really aware of uh, these risks. And uh, even if they would decide uh, to break off uh, negotiation, they know that uh, in practice, uh, EU companies and financial institutions would not be able to engage with the Iranian market uh, as they wished. Um, so um, I don't see any political, um, you know, like a, um, political achievement in uh, in uh, achieving this kind of split. And the level of coordination which you mentioned in the past five years, and also the types of transatlantic coordination on other issues right now, makes it very difficult to um, to imagine such such a split, which we saw, by the way, in 1997 when a similar type of legislation was introduced and um, the ILSA sanctions were introduced by the Clinton administration. Back then, the EU decided to challenge this type of uh, legislation and basically forbid all EU companies to abide by the, this type of legislation and uh, they, they continue to, to you know, engage with the Iranian companies as the US legislation was not in place. I don't see that happening uh, right now. A follow-up question to that uh, important point because right now, so the reason where that question comes from is, is we hear a lot of frustration uh, from executives at European companies. Uh, and you, you see this in general as well, just in how the most recent sanctions have impacted European investment uh, in Iran still far outpaces uh, U.S. investment in Iran, which is only a, a fraction, maybe less than 5% of investment that, of what you see for Europe and Iran. But still, it has been on a downward trend at the same time that although U.S. Uh, investment is small, it, it's, it's gone up. Uh, and we've seen that frustration, and there, there is at least a thought that there could be in the long term, let's say, that uh, U.S. Congress is, to, is seen as being blamed, or, or Iran is able to portray the U.S. Congress as being blamed for, for a deal unraveling. Uh, could you see in the long term any sort of erosion in um, how sanctions are enforced, for example? You know, is there any possibility that, something you mentioned before, is in EU courts, uh, European courts, could there be more challenges to that? Or, or do you still think that this will hold despite that? I think it will hold. The only thing that we are likely to see, and then we have seen for the first time in the past few months, um, is uh, an increasing pressure by the EU policymakers on uh, Congress to avoid uh, that uh, you know a nuclear deal is not derailed. Uh, they really want this deal to be achieved, and they know that Congress is one of the likely forces that, if not the most likely force, that could uh, impact an, a negative resolution of uh, this deal. Um, so what has happened is that the EU policymaker has consi- consistently visited DC and put pressure on congressional lawmakers in order for them to avoid to have any negative impact on the negotiations. But in terms of uh, putting into practice uh, the, uh, the sanctions, I think what we have seen after the JPOA has been uh, you know, like an indication of what would happen in any future scenario. There was uh, a lot of talks about the risks that, that uh, the EU companies and EU uh, countries uh, might break ranks uh, with the U.S., uh, starting investing in uh, Iran um, before the U.S. Uh, because there was uh, some kind of um, temporary and limited sanction relief. 
but nothing like that happened. In reality, there were a number of visits uh, taking place, but they were only for, um, you know, testing the ground for a post-sanction relief scenario. So I think, you know, like the most likely uh, scenario is that the US and the EU will continue to coordinate their efforts. Well, a lot to think about. And, and honestly, we, we covered a lot of ground today, uh, but I wanted to thank you for, for coming in. This was really interesting uh, to explore, you know, nuclear negotiations, you know, thinking about sanctions policy and, and what that uh, might mean as far as how it could change. And then also looking ahead, thinking about what a post-sanctions climate could mean. Obviously, very important for uh, businesses internationally. Um, one thing that, that we've talked about a lot with our clients in the past is that Iran really is that potential uh, largest untapped emerging market, but it doesn't mean that um, you know going in there is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that some of the obstacles politically that are faced are, are going to be resolved overnight. Still uh, really a market to watch right now, and, and thank you again for coming in. As a reminder to everyone listening, uh, Anise is part of uh, FSG's network of experts. FSG clients uh, that would like to speak with her should contact their client relationship director. To access our Iran resources and all FSG content, clients can go to our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great art performance in your emerging markets.